Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The latest from Seven News with Angela Cox. Good evening and welcome tonight. Breaking COVID modelling. Does Melbourne hold the key to ending Sydney's lockdown sooner? The Delta variant travels back to Victoria. New exposure sites tonight. The man behind the AIDS Grim Reaper ad joins me to discuss the new vaccine campaign. And Prince William slams racist football fans. We're live to London. But first, people in Sydney's southwest are being urged to take up the offer of the AstraZeneca vaccine to try to stop the outbreak. 112 new cases were announced today, with 34 of those infectious in the community. But how does the Sydney outbreak compare to Melbourne's second wave? On July 7 last year, Victoria recorded 122 cases overnight, but the state was not yet in lockdown. Two days later, Metropolitan Melbourne was ordered back into stage three restrictions with only four reasons to leave home. More than 100 cases were still under investigation. Around 26,000 tests were being carried out per day. One month later, cases were almost 700 on one day and the lockdown lasted another three months. Compare that to Sydney now, where overnight case numbers are similar, but lockdown began more than two weeks ago and testing numbers overnight were more than 46,000. Serena Andaloro is in southwest Sydney tonight. Serena, New South Wales Health has just released new exposure sites tonight. They have, and good evening to you. The majority of new cases in the southwest, with many more here in Fairfield, which is shaping up to be Sydney's new COVID epicentre. Now, to give you an indication, one in 20 people tested here at the Fairfield showground over the weekend tested positive. For the full list of all of those exposure sites, visit the New South Wales Health website. Now, uh, today we saw 112 new cases, 34 infectious in the community. The numbers going up exponentially. From Friday, Fairfield Showground will become a mass vac vaccination centre and nearby at Fairfield West, a car park will be transformed into the state's first 24-7 COVID testing clinic. As for the rest of the state, the Deputy Premier has tonight indicated that curfew is not on the cards, but he has hinted that people here in the southwest can expect more restrictions on their freedoms. And Serena, new rules came in today around QR codes and masks. Are people complying with the lockdown rules? Oh, look, Ange, by and large, people are complying. It's been a lot of changes in a very short space of time. And as you mentioned, there are quite a number of new rules. Uh, from today, QR codes are mandatory across all businesses and workplaces um, enforced by police. The fines are hefty. $5,000 for a business, $1,000 for an individual. And police have also been handing out fines for people not wearing masks. As you can see in those pictures that we're, we're playing you now, people really are still fighting back. Overnight we saw another 105 infringements written for non-compliance with the health orders across the greater metro Sydney. Brings a total to 376 since Friday since the police operation intensified. Over the weekend we saw 3,000 calls 
alone from members of the community who were concerned about COVID breaches. There were still some who were not taking the message seriously. And when it comes to masks from tomorrow, there will be new rules. They are mandatory in apartment blocks, common areas, lifts, stairwells, but not inside your unit. Okay, Serena Andalora in Sydney for us. Thank you. Victoria health officials have listed new COVID exposure sites in Melbourne after a group of Sydney removalists travelled to the state while infectious. Georgia Love is in Melbourne for us tonight. Georgia, is Victoria's COVID-free streak under threat? Scarily, it seems like it may be. We've had 12 days COVID-free, but as you said, the Sydney removalers coming down not only while Sydney was declared a red zone, but while they were infectious has put that under threat. Late tonight, there have been 10 new exposure alerts, the first we've had in over a week. Four of those are Tier 1 sites. Two have just come in in the last few minutes. They are the Mobile and McDonald's at Ballon. The other two Tier 1 exposure sites are Craigieburn Coles, that's the Coles at Craigieburn Central, uh, and also the Airlie Apartments in Maribyrnong. They are the Tier 1 sites. There are a number of Tier 2 and 3 sites as well. They're also from Craigieburn and Maribyrnong, also one in Broadmeadows. So anyone in those areas who's been in those areas from Thursday last week is urged to check the exposure site website and, of course, test and isolate if needs be. That 14-day isolation couldn't be more important than was highlighted today. We've actually had two members of a family that flew back from Sydney last week. Two members of that family have tested positive today. Now, they were isolating as Sydney was declared a red zone but they did initially test negative. So our health authorities have said today that is a massive, quick, timely reminder that it is absolutely imperative that anyone that's been in a red zone must quarantine for the full 14 days. Mm, Indeed. And Georgia, the Tennis Australia boss has ruled out hard quarantine for international players ahead of the Australian Open. He has. So we saw for the Australian Open earlier this year that the tennis players did do that forced two-week hotel quarantine. They certainly weren't happy about it and they have said they are simply not doing it again next year. As we know now, we've seen the MotoGP and the F1 pull out of competing here in Melbourne altogether because of these harsh rules. The fear is now that the Australian Open may do the same. Uh, The Victorian government has been given a deadline of September to tell the Australian Open team whether they will be able to travel in a hub-like arrangement. They say they can move just from between their hotel and the courts and not associate with the public at all. But, of course, we know that's what the F1 also said they would do and our government said that wasn't on. They'd have to meet the same quarantine rules as everyone else. So it's a lot of concern about what may happen for the future of our massive sporting industry here in Melbourne, And That's massive for Melbourne. OK, thanks so much, Georgia. The Burnett Institute has released new modelling which calls for tighter restrictions in New South Wales in order to control the Delta outbreak. I'm joined by Deputy Director Professor Margaret Heller. Thank you for joining us, Margaret. This modelling suggests the current range of restrictions aren't enough to get us back to zero cases. So what extra restrictions are required? What our work clearly shows is that although the recently reintroduced um, tightening of restrictions will begin to flatten that curve. So that's the yellow line, I think, that you're showing there. Mm -hmm. If we really want to bring numbers down in New South Wales, it'll need to be a little tighter. The kind of things that happened in Victoria um, to do that is what I can talk about. I can't say whether that will do that for New South Wales, but that included really people not um, 
going out to shops at all, except for grocery shopping. It included uh, tightening of the number of people that um, were, were people were, were interacting with when they went out for walks, use of masks all of the time, a curfew. We also, in Victoria, things like playgrounds were actually closed. So places where people might gather um, were really restricted. Same with sporting events. If you said which of those individually had an impact, it's impossible for me to say. What we can say is the, the group of those combined together brought Victoria um, out of its, its outbreak situation in 2020. Then we've applied that as if we had the Delta virus and looked at it and, again, really what we can see is that you really need to have very tight restrictions if you're going to bring down that yellow line and make it more like the blue line that you showed so that you can then really uh, bring cases back down to close to, to zero or less than five or whatever you might be aiming for. If we continue on the current level of restrictions, how long do you think this lockdown could last in Greater Sydney? Our models would suggest that those restrictions will, could potentially last for many, many, many months. Whereas if you tighten the restrictions, um, that although you'll need to be in it for longer than another week, it will be less than that. Thank you so much, Professor Margaret Hellard. Thank you. The federal government has denied it took Kevin Rudd's intervention to get Pfizer to fast track our vaccine stocks, which are due to be rolled out within the next week. Taylor Aiken joins us from Canberra tonight. Taylor, what is the background to this story? And this war of words all started after it emerged that former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd had personally lobbied Pfizer's global chairman, asking if the drug company could bring forward the delivery of millions of COVID-19 vaccines. Kevin Rudd stepping in following reports Australian health bureaucrats had bungled negotiations with the drug giant to boost Australia's vaccine supplies. Prime Minister Scott Morrison confirming today that he never spoke to Pfizer's global chairman during those negotiations, rather working through the local Pfizer Australia office. But today, Pfizer hit back, denying Mr Rudd's contribution had helped secure any deal, adding all agreements and supply arrangements, including dose planning, are exclusively made with the federal government. A position backed by Health Minister Greg Hunt, who says Mr Rudd's involvement did not change the outcome. Take a listen. If I may, I had a little chuckle uh, when I saw the story. I respect that uh, individuals will sometimes uh, take initiatives and we welcome and thank them. But did it make a difference? No. Today, Mr Rudd said he was never speaking on behalf of the government, only as a concerned private citizen. Mm. OK, and Taylor, there is more financial help on the way for New South Wales. Yes, some good news. A multi-billion dollar rescue package to be unveiled tomorrow. Seven News understands the joint state and federal rescue package will be based on previous cash flow boost schemes, giving small and medium businesses tax credits of up to $100,000 equal to that of their wages bill. However, the federal government remaining firm on one key point. JobKeeper won't be returning. And OK, Taylor Aiken in Canberra for us. Thank you. 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Critics say a public campaign to encourage people to get vaccinated is long overdue, but the two ads rolled out by the Morrison government have polarised audiences and experts. One features the slogan, Arm Yourself, encouraging people to get the jab to protect the community. But it's the second ad which has upset people most. It is confronting. Have a look. Confronting, as I said, but is it the medicine we needed? It's not the first time Australians have been scared into taking health threats seriously. Remember this commercial from the 80s addressing the HIV risk. At first, only gays and IV drug users were being killed by AIDS. But now we know every one of us could be devastated by it. The fact is, over 50,000 men, women and children now carry the AIDS virus. That in three years, nearly 2,000 of us will be dead. Simon Reynolds is the advertising expert behind that famous Grim Reaper ad. He joins me now. Thank you, Simon. Now, the government's vaccine ad has been compared to your original AIDS campaign. Do you see the parallels between the two? Well, I think there's one parallel, and that is that it's direct and it's attempting to grab people's attention with the fact that if you get COVID, it may not be as easy as a lot of Australians think. It's pointing out the bad side, the harsh side of COVID, and there's a similarity to the Grim Reaper. However, I will say this, it's a, it's a fraction of the impact of that original ad. Well, yeah, certainly we still remember it and the fact that we're still talking about it today. The government has been criticised for using shock tactics. Do you think, though, that a scare campaign is what Australian needs right now? Well, I think with the rise of the Delta strain, it is very much what it needs. There's so much complacency around the, the COVID virus. But this new Delta strain has got a lot of government officials worried and it's important to get uh, the Australian public also concerned about it, concerned enough to get vaccinated. What a lot of people don't realise is that 30% of Australians have said they're unlikely or considering not getting vaccinated. So all those people that say that we should do these really nice and friendly ads uh, forget the fact that one, almost one in three people will not get vaccinated unless we do something stronger. And importantly with that figure is that we need 80% to reach herd immunity. And if you've got 30% saying they're not getting it, we're never going to get to herd immunity and open up our borders. Uh, one major issue with the ad is that the woman in it, well, she looks too young to even get the jab at the moment under the government's rollout. Is that fair to scare young people who can't even access it even if they wanted to? Yeah, I think that's a real shame. And I think it stems from the fact that the government's been suddenly caught short with its marketing and had to put something that was apparently done last year uh, but never, never run on air, something to shock people, something to uh, wake people up a little bit. And so they grabbed what they had. Let's talk about the other ad, the Arm Yourself campaign. Do you think the messaging is clear in that? Uh, would you have done that differently? 
Well, the messaging is very clear because they keep repeating it, which is get vaccinated. It's just very weak. I mean, people have been telling us for uh, almost months that we need to get vac vaccinated. That's not enough. That's like an a, a, a alcohol company saying, have a drink. It's why. Why should we get vaccinated? Why do we need to do it now? How can we get it done? Where, who are we letting down if we don't get vaccinated? All these other aspects are what actually persuade people to get vaccinated, not someone with a, a Band-Aid on their shoulder saying that they've just done it. What tone would you have used for that ad? Well, I think we've got to always remember there's two audiences here. There's the people that are going to get vaccinated anyway. They don't need any advertising. Uh, it's the, the second audience is what we have to focus, focus on. And it's those that probably aren't or might take a year and a half to do it. We've got to uh, wake those people up. We've got to be stronger with those people. And we've got to say, hey, listen, this Delta strain, this could be disastrous. You've got to take action. You've got to take action now or as soon as you're allowed. OK, well, thank you so much for your expertise, Simon. In other news, a severe storm has ripped the roof of a home on the southern coast of Western Australia. Destructive winds destroyed the property at Eagle Bay. The Bureau of Meteorology has issued a severe weather warning for Perth as the cold front continues to move north. Wind gusts could reach 100 kilometres an hour tomorrow. Homicide detectives are investigating after a three-month-old baby was hit and killed by a train in Melbourne's east. The baby girl's mother was also struck by the train as it approached Upway Station yesterday afternoon. The child was flown to hospital but could not be saved. Her mother suffered serious injuries and remains in hospital under police guard. One of Hobart's most popular pubs has been destroyed by fire. The historic Brunswick Hotel went up in flames just before two this morning. Guests had to be evacuated through a second-storey window. Dozens of inmates at a Sydney prison have been secured after running riot this afternoon. At least 14 prisoners climbed onto the roof of the Parkley Correctional Centre and started a fire. You can see smoke and flames billowing from the roof. The prison houses medium and maximum security inmates. Right now, 12 NRL teams are packing their bags to relocate to Queensland. Sydney's COVID outbreak left the league with no option but to leave New South Wales. Here's NRL CEO Andrew Abdo speaking earlier. So this will be definitely our biggest uh, logistical operation and challenge that the game has faced. We've made the decision to relocate 41 people in total per uh, club. We're also going to extend the invitation to direct families to be able to um, make the move up. Joel Dry is at Suncorp Stadium tonight. Joel, how will this Queensland NRL bubble work? Good evening, Ange. Well, it'll be three hubs inside a wider southeast Queensland bubble and all forced by the NRL's uh, basically unenviable decision to have to drag the game out of Sydney to keep the season going. They had a couple of choices. They could stay in Sydney and play in front of no crowds, cancel the season altogether, or escape the city and come to Queensland. That is the choice they have taken. So on Wednesday, 12 teams will move to the southeast. Four will be based on the Sunshine Coast, three here in Brisbane, and five 
live on the Gold Coast. It is just shy of 500 players and also their families if they choose to make the trip. It also means that all games going forward will be played here in Queensland. We know that we saved the AFL season last year. It's looking like that will be the case for the NRL season. We have had all three games of State of Origin, the third to be played here on the Gold Coast on Wednesday night. Now we'll have the remainder of the NRL season going forward. How long it stays that way depends on the situation in Sydney, but with the way things are going, it looks like they'll be here for at least a month, probably early finals. We may very well get the NRL grand final here in Queensland also. Mm, indeed. OK. And Joel, the Queensland border with New South Wales, it remains open, but it's not looking good, is it? Certainly not. The Premier put out a pretty stern warning to any Queenslanders who remain in regional New South Wales that you should come home now. It is really a day-by-day -day prospect with both the Chief Health Officer and the Premier keeping a very close eye on the situation in Sydney. What is saving the border from being shut right now is the fact that at the moment most of the cases are contained within that greater Sydney area. The Chief Health Officer today says if she sees any other cases popping up outside of that area in regional uh, New South Wales, particularly close to the border, then she won't hesitate to slam it shut. The Premier has previously said is that all it will take is 24 hours to see those hard borders, hard checkpoints back on the Gold Coast and other border areas, which is uh, no doubt very difficult news to hear if you are one of the people who lives in those border communities. Mm. OK, Joel Dry in Brisbane for us. Thank you. By flying to the edge of space and returning safely to Earth, billionaire Richard Branson has ushered in a new era of private space tourism. Let's go to Network Finance Editor Gemma Acton for more on this. Gem, um, why is this such a huge turning point, do you think, for space tourism? Well, and anything that Sir Richard Branson does does tend to get a lot of hype because he's just such a fantastic marketing genius and he'd particularly want to blow his trumpet about this one given that he's just pipped at the post Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, who is another billionaire, space-obsessed entrepreneur, yeah. and he's actually going next Tuesday into space. This is the fourth manned spacecraft that Virgin Galactic has sent uh, past the Earth's atmosphere. Mm. Um, but this just brings them one step closer to making commercial space travel a reality. And this is something that Sir Richard and his team has been working on for 17 years now. He first forecast that there would be regular trips by 2007. Uh, and over that period, we've seen around 600 people buy tickets ready to go. So certainly something they've been waiting for a long time. Well, like you say, he's a great salesman. The pictures are amazing. The idea of being weightless in space, it's alluring, but how much is it going to cost? Yeah, not cheap. It's um, around 330,000 Australian dollars for a ticket. And this is just for a 15 minute jaunt around space. So yes, it's incredible. Yes, you're looking up at the black sky, looking down at Earth and the commentary we've seen is that the colours on Earth are just so spectacular from space. Uh, but nonetheless, it's not really very democratised. First of all, you need a lot of money. Yeah. And second of all, a huge risk appetite. Remember, it was only seven years ago that an earlier iteration of the Virgin spacecraft crashed and killed a pilot. So at the moment, a pretty small market, uh, but they're hoping that grows over time. Yeah, so what about Australia? Are we being left behind in this space tourism? All these billionaires trying to get up there? Well, Good news for us is that we have a very close partnership with the United States and when it comes to space and defence, obviously trust is absolutely paramount given this so important from a security perspective. So that relationship um, puts us in good stead to work alongside the US and the US is the current global leader in commercial space exploration. Uh, we also have 
an enormous country, which is largely unpopulated, so good points for spacecraft launches. And also the weather conditions are amenable to space launches as well. And we have uh, quite a sophisticated manufacturing industry here, small but growing and focused on advanced manufacturing, which is very relevant for industries such as defence and space. Right now we don't have um, a special space travel program to look at this, uh, but certainly interest from the government and businesses, whether they're new startups or bigger companies, directing more money towards this uh, is growing at the moment. So watch your space, really. Mm, interesting. OK, thanks, Jim. Thanks, Andrew. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Prince William have led a chorus of condemnation of shocking racist abuse sent to three England players who missed penalties during the Euro finals. Europe correspondent Sarah Greenalt is live for us in London. Sarah, this is awful. What is the latest? And good evening. It is. And England's manager, Gareth Southgate, has uh, conducted a press conference a few hours ago saying that this abuse is simply unforgivable. Three of England's brightest, youngest stars have been the victims of, quite frankly, disgusting, uh, vile, racist abuse across several social media platforms after they missed penalties during last night's shootout against Italy at the Euros final at Wembley Stadium. As you say, there has been a chorus of condemnation here this morning, led by Prince William, who was at Wembley stadium with young Prince George and the Duchess of Cambridge. William has taken to Twitter saying, I am sickened by the racist abuse aimed at England players after last night's match. It is totally unacceptable that players have to endure this abhorrent behaviour. It must stop now and all of those involved should be held accountable. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has also added his voice to this saying the team deserves to be lauded as heroes, not racially abused on social media. Although he too has been criticised by the opposition leader for not calling out this sort of behaviour sooner. English fans booed English players who took the knee at their first round match in this tournament. Boris Johnson didn't condemn it then. Most people say that he should have. Uh, as I mentioned, Gareth Southgate did hold a press conference a short time ago. Take a listen. For some of them to be abused is unforgivable, really. Um, I know a lot of that has come from abroad. You know, the people that track those things have been able to explain that. Um, but not all of it, and um, it's just not what we stand for. We, we I think, have been a, a beacon of light in bringing people together, in people being able to relate to the national team, and the national team stands for everybody. The racism, Ange, is bad enough. But just to give you an, an insight or an example into who these players are, Marcus Rashford, who is one of these three young players, he has been hailed a national hero during the COVID-19 pandemic here in the UK. He single-handedly raised tens of millions of dollars so that vulnerable children could have access to meals during the school holidays. He did all that and now he has been uh, the victim of this. Just awful. Um, what is being done to track down the people who've sent this abuse? The Metropolitan Police and say they are investigating these social media posts. Twitter has said that it has taken down about a thousand posts in the past 24 hours and has suspended some accounts. Uh, Facebook, which owns Instagram, has said that it is doing the same. But there's also been criticism of these social media platforms for not acting soon enough. These posts, which are disgusting, were up there for several hours. And in terms of the general uh, racism in this country, one commentator summed it up really well on the BBC a short time ago. She said there 
there is a conditional love for the English players when they are winning, when they are doing well, which they did right throughout this tournament. Everyone here is behind them. Then when they lose, uh, tragically, like last night in that penalty shootout, there is this racism which they've all, almost come to expect. So something here, Ange, does need to change. Yeah, indeed. OK, Sarah Greenwich in London for us. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Now, Gemma Acton's back with a look at the markets. Thanks, Andrew. Well, shares across Asia popped today, helped by the unveiling late Friday of extra stimulus to help the Chinese economy. That anticipated boost to regional growth helped several share markets, including Japan's Nikkei. Now, despite that optimism, major share markets in Europe have opened lower tonight. That's on rising fears of the Delta variant spread. And that same caution is feeding through to US markets as well, where only the tech-heavy Nasdaq is looking towards a positive open. Oil hasn't managed to properly regain its momentum since the collapse last week of OPEC plus discussions among major oil producers. Meanwhile, the Aussie dollar continues to slide. It's now been below 75 US cents for a whole week. Ange. Thank you, Jim. A Super Mario Nintendo 64 game has sold for a record-breaking $2 million. The sealed copy dating back to 1996 was sold at auction in Dallas, Texas. Back in its heyday, it was the first 3D game featuring iconic Italian character Mario and was originally sold for $99. Thank you for your company this evening from the team here at 7 News. That is the latest. I'm Angela Cox. Good night.